This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, please speak to us through your word. By the power of your spirit, Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what it is that you have for us this morning. Amen. Last week, I camped out in one of my favorite coffee shops here in the city, a shop that Jess and I are in at least once a week, sometimes more. I did not give up coffee for Lent. It's a good place to go to get some work done with all of the renovations happening here and space being limited, with all of the demolition that my children do at home on a daily basis. It's nice to escape, to sip some really good coffee, and to get some work done. And in all of our time there, we have gotten to know the regulars. We've become the regulars. I recognize so many people who come in and out the doors I know people on staff. I know people that I wouldn't have known before, and they know me. And so last week, as I sat there working on this sermon, as I sat reflecting on our reading from Romans 1, I felt the weight of Paul's words. I sat in that space across the room from a young gay couple. I sat in that space across the room from a young woman with a pride shirt on. And as I sat in that space, which like so many spaces today, totally and fully supports the LGBTQ views on sexuality, it felt overwhelmingly heavy to consider Paul's words to us this morning. To consider Paul's words about sexuality and about God's wrath. These are not impersonal, or abstract teachings. We are talking about people. We are talking about friends and family members. And yet the more I've sat with this text, the more I've realized that it is not a difficult text to sit with merely because of what it says about those people there, or what, about what it says about those of us here who may experience same-sex attraction. It's also challenging and difficult because of how it confronts me and you, all of us. In Lent, we are invited into 40 days of self-examination, 40 days to ask ourselves, in what ways must I fall again at the foot of the cross and cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner? If we have ears to hear, Not one of us should walk away from Paul's words and Romans 1 without being profoundly challenged. Not one of us should walk away this morning without being confronted by God's word. That said, I admit it's really difficult to hear anything else besides Paul's comments about sexuality. And yet before we can consider what Paul has to say about human sexuality, We have to understand why he's saying it in the first place. 
Paul is discussing homosexuality as an example in a larger argument. An argument that's going to begin right here in our text and going to run through the first half of his letter. And what is his larger argument? That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That we are all in need of the gospel, the saving power of God for everyone who believes. The church Paul was writing to, they were not fully convinced of this. They were made up of Jews and non-Jewish Romans who rather than living out of their unity in Christ, were dividing. Before Paul's writing of this letter, Emperor Claudius had expelled the Jews from the city of Rome. And so five years later, when they were allowed to return, they came back to a thoroughly non-Jewish city and a non-Jewish church. And so the cultural tensions were strong. And the context of the letter leads many to believe that Paul is not only addressing cultural and religious tensions here, but he's addressing a sense of superiority, of moral superiority that the Jews seemed to feel towards their Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ and towards the Romans, their Roman neighbors in general. He knew that they would have no trouble seeing the Romans all around them as sinners deserving of God's wrath. When Paul writes that they have suppressed the truth, worshiping idols rather than the Creator, the Jewish believers most likely would have said, you're right, they have. They are guilty of sin. They are the ones deserving of wrath. Tell them, Paul. The Jews looked with disdain upon those non-Christians, those idolaters in the culture who were exchanging, quote, natural intercourse with the opposite sex for intercourse with those of the same sex. But were the Jews right? Were they right to sit on their high horse, to stand on their moral high ground over their fellow Romans? who were disobeying God in this way. And if you read on, in chapters 2 and 3 of Romans, Paul answers with a definitive no. No. No, he confronts the Jews themselves, his fellow Jews, with the reality that they too have rejected God, that they too have fallen short, and that they are even more guilty than their Gentile neighbors because they knew better because they had the law, they had the prophets. He summarizes his argument in chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. What then, he says, are we the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous not even one. There is no one who has understanding. There is no one who seeks God. Or as he says again in, verses, in chapter 3, 22 through 23, for there is no distinction since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What is it that all of his listeners have in common? What is it that all of us have in common? It is our sin and our brokenness. The fact that we all stand guilty before the very God 
that we have rejected. Paul is pointing to same-sex intercourse as an example, as an example of our going against God's design for us. But he is not saying that homosexuality is the only way that we do this. No, look, look with me at verses 28 through 32 in your bulletins. Look at the list that Paul gives us. He says, he, or he includes all those who are filled with every kind of injustice. Every kind of injustice. Does this include ways, the ways in which we turn a blind eye to some of the things happening in the world? A blind eye to how we maybe benefit from sweatshops and slavery overseas? Is that what he means? Is he including those, or he includes those with, sorry, he includes those filled with every kind of covetousness and envy. Like when we're consumed by a longing for our friend's nicer, newer house, or their car, or fill in the blank. When we are discontent and we grow bitter towards people who have relationships, who have families, who have been dealt a different hand than us. He includes those filled with every kind of strife, the gossips and the slanderers, like when we divide viciously online over politics and theology and religion, dragging people's names through the mud, uttering half-truths that we know will score a point. What about when we're foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless? And that's not even Paul's whole list. Not one of us can walk away this morning from Romans 1 without being confronted. The fact is that we are all in need of his gospel, of God's grace, because apart from him, we are hopeless. But even in understanding Paul's argument, right, that is the argument of the first several chapters of Romans. Even when we understand that, we're left with this blunt teaching that Paul views sex with someone of the same sex as a sin to be repented of, as opposed to a way of life to be celebrated. Is this what we ought to believe? I want to answer this question both gently and with clarity this morning. The historic Christian faith of which we are a part of has held that the Bible teaches that sex was created to be between a husband and a wife. It's becoming more and more common to dismiss Paul's comments here on sexuality, claiming that they mean something else, or that if Paul were alive today, he would not have written this. And yet we as a church believe that the more we study the scriptures and the, cult and the culture in which they were written, the more the traditional views of sexuality are supported. They are, not, they are not contradicted. And so, as Christians who submit to the authority of God's word, we agree with Paul. We agree that sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman is sin. It is not what is best for us. It goes against the grain of God's good plan for us. And I'm not going to pretend like this is easy to say or easy to believe in this day and age. As I've said, this is personal for all of us. 
We're not, we aren't discussing ideas. We're discussing people. We're discussing lives. Not just strangers or acquaintances in a coffee shop. We're talking about our family and our close friends. We may even be discussing you. You may be sitting here this morning as someone who identifies as LGBTQ. You may be sitting here wrestling internally with the growing realization that your desires do not align with this idea of a husband and a wife. As a Christian, that is a profoundly difficult thing to realize. It doesn't help that the church has so often condemned those attracted to the same sex as a sinner set apart in their own class. Hear me so clearly, that is not true. The Bible does not teach us that. Many strong believers and teachers of the faith were men and women who were or who are attracted to those of the same sex. The late Henry Nouwen, my former professor and a man I consider to be a mentor and friend, Wesley Hill, and writer and preacher Jackie Hill Perry, to name just three. These are saints. These are women and men of great faith. We all desire things that we should not. That's part of what it means to be in a broken world. But that in and of itself is not a sin. To be tempted is not to sin. No, our problem is when our desires lead us to sinful actions. In James 1, 14 through 15, we read, One is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And that sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. We are all tempted and enticed to act in ways that we should not act. And we have all given in. We all have sinned. The message of Romans is clear. No one is righteous. Not even one. This is what we mean when we say that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That being said, the solution is not to throw up our hands and say, well, if we're all sinners, then why does any of it matter? It does matter. Because when God says no to us, to our desires, it's out of love for us. It's out of a desire for our greatest good. We cannot call good, right, and beautiful that which God has said is wrong. To do so is not to abuse God's grace, it's to reject his grace and his love for us. And please do hear this this morning. No matter who you are or how you come this morning, God loves you. As we read in the gospel reading last Sunday, he loves you so much that he gave his only son. As we read here in Romans, the good news of Christ is, that, is God's saving power for everyone who believes. He loves you. This then begs the question, 
How can our God, the God that the Bible so clearly teaches us is love, be a God of wrath? God's wrath is not the opposite of his love. It's the opposite of indifference. If sin is a poison to creation, then it is right and good for God to remain or to not remain indifferent towards it. If sin is to choose death over life, and God, then God cannot be indifferent to death. He is not indifferent to the death around us. In the same way that I, when I see one of my kids harming another one, I don't hate the kid doing the harming, but I do hate to see what he has done or she has done to the, their sibling. I hate to see my child suffer. I am not indifferent to the pain of my children, and God is not indifferent towards us. He is a God of wrath because he is love. And yet we read here that if we choose to suppress the truth, if we choose to reject him, to reject the ways that we were created to live, then his wrath may be revealed in him letting us have exactly what we desire. We read three times in Romans 1 that God's response to those who suppressed the truth was to give them over, to let them have precisely what they wanted. C.S. Lewis articulates this dynamic so well in the book, The Great Divorce, when he says, there are only two types of people. In the end, there are those who say to God, thy will be done. And there are those whom God says, to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. The punishment is precisely what we desire. The punishment is the crime. I think back to years, the years as a younger man, when I was struggling with my sexuality, both with pornography and in relationships. The Lord didn't smite me from above. The ground didn't open up to eat me. No, he let me have what I wanted. As a result, I functionally just turned my back on him, choosing my ways over his ways. As a younger man, I suffered in my soul, pursuing intimacy and the pleasure of sexuality before entering into the covenant of marriage. I pursued those things outside of God's design. Those decisions God is certainly redeeming, but they're decisions that I still feel the effects of today. If we continue to do what is wrong, his wrath is seen in him allowing us to go down the road that we choose, to reap the benefits of our thoughts, our longings, our actions. Why does he do this? Honestly, I don't know. What I do know is that even when he allows us to go our own way, he continues to love us. Perhaps he wants us to see that our ways will ultimately fail us. Perhaps he wants us to see that there's no life to be found apart from him. What I do know is this. Our God is not cruel. And he takes no delight in us going off our own way. No, we read in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is patient with us 
not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. We are invited to respond in humility, coming to our God and asking him, where have I followed too much the devices and desires of my own heart? Lord, where have I chosen my way over yours? And the Spirit of God longs to open our eyes. It is his desire to open our eyes. So often he does this through his word or through our brothers and sisters in Christ, through the scripture and through the family of God. But because of that, it takes a lot of humility. This kind of self-reflection, self-awareness, it takes the humility to face our greatest sins, to let others in, to let the light shine in the darkness. But we must. We must. Because to quote Cornelius Plantinga, if we cannot hear how wrong the notes of our sin are, then the music of creation and the still greater music of grace will whistle right through our skulls. This Lent, as we slow down, as we make space for the healing work of God in us, let us ask him to reveal to the us those places where we have chosen death over life, our own way over his way. Let us bring to him all of who we are, our questions, our fears, our longings, our sins, our very selves. And may we know the saving power of God. May we know his love and his grace anew.